0: Good morning, folks. Welcome. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our uh, scripture this week is First uh, Corinthians one ten through twelve. Now, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you there, and we will be on page five fifty four. And if you don't have a Bible, certainly feel welcomed to take that one with you as our gift. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ this is the word of the Lord
1: let's pray Heavenly Father we come with uh, hearts ready to receive your word we thank you Lord for the power of your word we thank you that for the way that it transforms us and searches us out and God, I, I pray right now, Lord, that you would allow your word to just begin to transform our hearts. Every soul in here has come in here with an experience of this week, of maybe the last month, maybe the last several months as we've dealt with this COVID-19 crisis, Lord. And and God, there are some here who are uh, filled with joy for one reason or another, uh, there are others here who are heavily burdened for one reason or another. But Lord, I pray that for this moment, that everything would be made right in the light of, of the scriptures, Lord, that you would just uh, clearly speak to us, to your people, God, and show us uh, what it is that you want us to see uh, from, your, from this passage, Lord, that we wouldn't approach it critically and, and imagine that the things that you are calling us to are impossible, but Lord, we would allow uh, the Scripture to dictate what is possible, not our own hearts or minds. And so, God, we thank you for that, and Lord, I pray that you would especially equip me to be able to speak your word um, clearly to your people, God, and, and that uh, it would have its desired effect, Lord, and um, we would all leave here transformed uh, not by the power or eloquence of a preacher, but by the inherent, spirit-packed, Christ-anointed power of your word. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. Um, I want to real quickly uh, tell you that, A, I missed you last week. And I, I know that you guys were really blessed uh, to have Pastor Dave uh, bring the word to you. And, um, and so I want to thank him. Um, you know, I've been in churches where, and I say this often because it's really important for you to know it and for me to be able to express how I feel to you. But I've been in churches where the leadership of the churches, you know, they may be either overbearing or, um, or there, there's a lot of tension and fighting in there. And I am so grateful for, uh, the eldership, the staff, uh, the people that serve here at Northridge Life Church that, that there is no, um, you know, there's no shaking in those waves that, that pastor Dave, uh, Paul Landers, and I get along really well and, uh, serve, uh, each other together with joy and, um, uh, serve for you, uh, with joy. And, you know, we have Paul and the uh, Brooks in the, in the youth department. I've determined though, that we cannot have any more leadership named Paul because it gets really confusing. (laughs) Um, but, uh, Paul's in the youth department doing a great job. And, um, uh, and just all of our children's workers, just really grateful for the unity and the, and the peace that God has granted to Northridge Life Church. So I wanted to mention Pastor Dave also for a second reason. I generally, one of the first things I do, because I am fed so much by his preaching, when I'm out of town, I'll immediately uh, pull up either a podcast or a video now that we're doing that and, um, and, and watch or listen to what he said, and I'm always very, very blessed by it. Well, this week, I did not do that until last night. I, I, you know, I had an incredibly busy week, finally slowed down enough to get to sit down and listen to the, the things that he shared with you last week. And um, I was amazed because at the, of course, at that point, m- this message was already written. And it's, it's amazing how that a lot of what he said um, is really complementary to the things that I felt like the Lord um, said uh, wants to say to you this morning. And there was no collaboration whatsoever. And, and I've seen that in my years in ministry. I've seen that thousands of times, and it always amazes me how God does that. So that may not impress you, but I thought it was pretty cool. So anyway, uh, hopefully you'll pick up on some of that. So uh, uh, Daryl read us this passage, and I want you to understand that... You know that 's chapter One, about ten verses in and and Paul, when he writes to the fir- to the Corinthians in this first letter, he is concerned about divisions and about factions that have sprung up in this once united church. The church that was united is not united anymore. Now, keep in mind that wasn 't always the way it was when the gospel first came to Corinth they heard the same gospel they responded to the same gospel they believed it they followed Christ and yet now paul is getting reports from chloe's household that they're splitting off into divisions into camps and and they the way that they split off is identified not by uh, so much a, a doctrine or you know anything of that nature they're they're splitting off according to their favorite preacher Uh, the, some groups are saying, Hey, Paul's my man. And another one says, Peter or Cephas, as it says in the text is my man. Another one says, Apollos is my man. And then you have the really, really super spiritual guys who are saying, but I just follow Christ. You know, they, they don't need any preachers at all. And so, um, Paul does not praise them for this. He actually chastises them for these divisions that exist where only love and unity should be present within this body. And throughout the remainder of his uh, letter, it, it, 1 Corinthians, if you've never read it, from uh, chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 16, you really ought to do that because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is he's dealing with a ton of very, very practical things, problems that have sprung up in the church, and he moves chapter to chapter from one to the other, things that the church has misunderstood, things in their practice that need to be changed, and so he's... He's dealing with those things. In this letter, he talks about divorce among Christians. He talks about lawsuits among Christians. He talks about the proper roles for the different genders within church. He talks about the ordination of the Lord's Supper. We read from that passage almost every week. He, he talks about spiritual gifts, how they should operate in the church and, and, and what the proper order of that is. He even uh, winds up talking about the resurrection of the dead and what they should believe about that. He talks about all of these things, but I want you to know if you read through it, like I said, chapter 1 to chapter 16, you're going to see something. There's going to be a common thread that literally flows through the entire passage, and it's this. Through all of these things he discusses, his emphasis always seems to circle back to the need for the church to operate within love and unity in the church. Let me give you a prime example of this. Um, almost every wedding I have ever done, uh, every wedding I've ever performed, the, the, the bride and the groom ask me if I will read 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. He, he goes on and on about the, the nature of true love. Now, uh, it's very clear why a married couple would want that. But Paul inserts that passage right smack dab in the middle, not on a discussion about marriage at all. The discussion is about spiritual gifts. And what he's saying is, you may be really happy about your tongues and your prophecy, but if you have not love, it is meaningless and so he's saying that unity should exist unity in a church love genuine gospel centered love and unity and peace should exist and and that that it trumps any other you know wispy spiritual gift you may think you have y'all are awful quiet this morning Maybe we need to start checking temperatures. Maybe you just all came down with coronavirus all of a sudden, and and uh, you're too sick to listen to this. But, um, so but that's right in the middle, like I said, of uh, a discussion on spiritual gifts. So, another quick example: Paul in this passage, in this uh, book, spends a lot of time. Um, exploring whether it's it's okay for the Christians in that city that's filled with pagan temples to purchase in the markets and consume meat that has been offered to idols. But what I want you to know is he never ever says at one point in that book it's, it's either inherently okay or inherently not okay to eat idols. What he does, he, he points their attention to how it affects the conscience of other believers. His concern is, if you do this or if you don't do this, what is it going to do to the unity in the church? That was his concern. He says that you have to be loving and accommodating to believers who may see things differently. And so when we think about all of this, we have to ask ourselves if Paul's ideal that he expressed in in the text that Daryl read to us this morning is even remotely workable. Let me read it to you again. L- listen to these words carefully. He says, I appeal to you brothers. He's talking to a whole church and by extension, the whole world universal church because he, it wound up in the Bible. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus. Watch this that you all agree. How many of you would give yourself a passing grade on a hundred percent total unchangeable agreement? Raise your hand. Come on. I'm waiting what I thought that you all agree. And he says that there be no divisions among you, but that you be unified in the same mind and in the same judgment. I want to ask you a question. We're going to, we're going to survey the church. The church is, is almost 2000 years old at this point in history. It's been almost 2000 years since this letter was written. And I want to ask you in your humble opinion, has the church become more or less in agreement Anybody else? More or less? Most people would say less. See, when Paul ministered, I mentioned this, there was one type of church. They were all preaching the same gospel. There weren't many of them, but they were all preaching the same thing. And and it is true that Paul occasionally had to go to war against false teachers and false doctrines and and correct those things. But in 2,000 years... In just 2,000 years, that may seem like a long time to you, but in in world history, it's not that long. In 2,000 years, this simple community of unified believers has transformed into a web of between 21,000 and 33,000 distinct denominations. How's that for agreement? 21,000 and 30... Now, now I, I don't know if you follow what I just said. The difference between 21,000 and 33,000 is 12,000. That's a lot. That's a big difference. That's, that's not a, a minor error on the accounting sheet. What I'm telling you is that there is so many different flavors of us that we can't even keep track of them all to the tune of about 12,000. It all depends on who you're asking for the count. And add to this the untold... uh, numbers thousands of independent churches of which we are one and you discover that all over the world we have wildly different interpretations and opinions on a vast variety of positions in three areas in our theology what we believe about god in our ecclesiology that word just means what we believe about the church and in our polity that means within the church how we believe the church is to function and to be governed we cannot say with that kind of numbers that we agree on much. A simple fact, this simple fact, the expression of this simple fact, may actually discourage you in one or two ways. Paul is telling the whole church that we should agree, that we should be in unity in our judgment. And this simple fact may discourage you in one of two ways. First, you may be someone, and I hope you are, that cares deeply about the truth. But you may hear those those kind of statistics and you may believe that it is impossible, utterly impossible to really know what is right and what is wrong. What is truth and what is error. Who really knows? With 33,000 denominations, who really knows? And secondly, you may take a position that you feel like Christianity boils down to a handful of tedious facts for eggheads in seminaries to try to sort out. But that they don't really on a day-to-day basis, affect you. You may feel like it really doesn't make any difference what you believe and within that soup of denomination. It doesn't really make any difference what you believe as long as it's remotely Christian. And so you absolve yourself from taking a real stand on anything at all. But what I want to tell you is whether, whether you just say it doesn't matter and you can't know right or wrong or whether you say, well, I'm just going to do the best I can and grab onto anything that feels Christian, both of these positions would be unhelpful to you because God intends you to know his truth. It would be totally unhelpful to the undying sinful world in which you live because God intends you to know the truth so that you can share the truth. And it would be completely unhelpful to the church of which you are a member, the body of Christ of which you are a member, because it, without some sense of what is true and what is, what, is, what is truth and what is error, chaos would reign supreme. So. It's not helpful to take those positions. And in fact, it's not biblical to take those positions. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, You most of you have heard this passage. It says, do your best. Do your best. Don't mail this in. Don't do it half-heartedly. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who has no need to be ashamed. And he defines what that looks like by rightly handling the word of truth. God is calling you as believers. You may think you're not bookish. You may think you're not, you know, uh, an academic, whatever, a theologian. But God is calling us as believers to the effort that study requires. He doesn't expect you to you know, be a doctorate in theology, but he expects you to seek and understand what is true. He refers to us in this passage as workers. That would be those who, what? Work. Workers work. He refers to us as workers, and he says that we should do our best. He insists in this passage that there is a right way... To handle his word, which, if there is a right way, help me out here. If there's a right way, that would by nature imply that there is also a man, y'all are good. In the very next chapter of 2 Timothy, after he says this, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And here's a really important word it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There are several things we should observe in this passage. First, all scripture comes directly from God. The word here is inspired or literally God-breathed. That is why it's so important that we don't, especially when we come to difficult passages, that we don't look at any passage if, if it's all from God directly to us, we need to never disregard any passage as unimportant, as unnecessary, as irrelevant, as too lofty. Because if we do so, we do so at great insult to God, who is holy, as Pastor Dave talked about last week. And, and in so doing, we do so to great detriment to ourselves. Why is this true? Because this passage also tells us that Scripture is profitable, Scripture is not your enemy. Scripture is not your burden. Scripture is the source of your greatest blessing. It's profitable. It can teach us, the Bible says. It can redirect us when we're in the wrong path. It can reform us when when we are recovering from our own sinfulness. It can build us up and it can compel us towards further holiness. But this verse also tells us that scripture is not only profitable with some specific benefits, but it's profitable towards a specific end that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Have you ever felt incomplete? Anybody? Have you ever felt that you were not equipped to handle what you faced on a day-to-day basis? Well, I want to invite you to embrace this passage as a promise from God. The Bible says as you honor the word of God, recognizing that it came directly from God and that it's profitable, he says that you'll be complete, that you'll have everything you need in his word so that you can be everything he wants you to be. Wow, that's a great promise. It'll, it'll turn that Drab, morning, quiet time all the way around for you if you really believe that. That God is equipping you for every good work with his word. You are not coming to this battle empty handed. You have been armed with God's very own word. So when Paul says that we should all agree, let's not get too far away from that. When he says we should all agree, even in the face of 33,000 unique denominations, We should not just blow that off and say that's impossible. It's impossible. The real question for believers like you and I becomes, how is that possible? How can that come to pass? How do we agree when we do not see or interpret the same scriptures in the same way, and we have all these competing opinions and positions and perspectives? Well, let's examine for the, the remainder of this message, what agreement means. I don't think it means that the international church and every nation all over the world uh, throws away everything that makes them distinct, everything that makes them unique, everything that, that, that is a, a perspective to them. They just toss that away and walk in lockstep with each other. It would be great if that would happen. And can I let you in on a little secret? Can I give you a little sneak peek to the future? A day is coming when it will. A day is coming when all of the mystery that surrounds the words that God has left with us will be removed. And the church, in the day of the resurrection, when the Lord calls us up, is going to know, the Bible says, as they are known. And we will know perfectly. And there will be no more silly factions, no more silly disagreements. There won't be a Baptist heaven and a Methodist heaven. There will be the kingdom of God with all the saints from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together around the throne of God. It'll all be gone. All of it will be gone. But not today. Today is not that day. But I really believe, this is what I want you to hear, this is the nugget of this. I I really believe that most church differences, now hear me carefully, most church differences, not all of them, some are critical, but most church differences are actually a feature of the church and not a bug in the operation. I think they 're actually a benefit to us now, why would I say something so crazy as that? why can 't all those other churches around the world just agree with us wouldn 't that be much more simple i mean we 're not going to agree with them, but they should certainly agree with us right i 'm kidding i 'm kidding. why do i say it 's a feature and not a bug because those differences listen carefully to this those differences. Force us to acknowledge that none of us knows everything perfectly When I have a brother in christ at a different church that I love and that I respect and we cannot agree On a matter of doctrine, you know what it means. It means one of us doesn't understand completely And I can be arrogant about it and say, well, I hope he figures this out Or I can or I can say, well, I guess I just better give up what I believe but that's not the point the point is not to, the, to just know for sure, for sure, what, which one is right and which one is wrong. The point is to say, hey, neither one of us, brother, we, neither one of us know this perfectly. But I can still love you. We have the same source material. We're all reading the same Bible, and yet we've come with different, varying convictions. And you know what that tells me? There's only one who knows everything now because of this because we have to live in a world where we're not going to come to perfect agreement on everything because of this you and i get the very real opportunity and it's a very real opportunity you can can ignore it and you can neglect this opportunity but it still exists we have the very real opportunity to love people who think differently Who behave differently, who worship differently, who interpret differently, and yet uh, we can remain committed to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a great opportunity. It also happens, or uh, opens rather, this also opens the very real possibility to us, and we don't like this because of the requirements. This possibility is open to us, here's the requirements, if we remain humble and teachable, it, but, but if we will remain humble and teachable, the opportunity opens for us to learn and appreciate something new about God and about his church. Maybe something we didn't previously see, see clearly, and at times even conforming our lives to it. Now, I'm going to tell you, the guy who's standing here talking to you now has a, a, a series, a catalog of very thought through, um, wrestled with beliefs. And a a, a large portion of them are not the beliefs that I had when I first became a Christian. Why? Because over time, people were able to open the Word of God, and they were able to clearly and accurately show me where maybe my position wasn't as strong as I thought it was. Now, I want you to be careful here, though. You could walk out. If I stopped right here, you could walk out the building, and you could totally miss what I'm trying to say. I want you to be careful. This doesn't translate into an I'm okay, you're okay, let's just all get along mentality. That's not how we approach the church or the Bible. There are still, please listen to me, there are still false teachers out there Bible calls them things like wolves and, and thieves. They're out there and they, they're armed with false doctrines and, and they're not on equal footing with other beliefs. Some beliefs are superior to other beliefs and some beliefs are downright destructive and sinful. They're heresies and they want to seduce you and deceive you and ultimately enslave you. So what we have to have, we have to have some sort of mechanism to assess what we choose to believe and what we choose to embrace and what we choose to distance ourselves from. All doctrines and practices are not created equal. Some have to be believed, and they have to be adhered to, and they even have to be celebrated like we do in our music. But some... There are going to be some that we just don't understand. We're not coming to the same conclusion. And when that happens, those people who believe those things must be given liberty within the body of Christ. And then there's still a third category of doctrines and beliefs that must be clearly seen as unbiblical, and they have to be shunned and loudly condemned. For several years, I used an approach. Now, we're not even talking about the 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 truly false doctrines here. For the remainder of the message, we're just going to talk about the the things that we you know we might disagree on, but they're not inherently unchristian. Uh, for years, I used a, a, an approach to these problems, and I would categor, categorize doctrines um, and practices as either essential or non-essential. These are the essential things to where we have to agree. This is the non-essential. This is where we don't necessarily have to agree. Essential doctrines were those that had to be agree on. In order for me to regard you as being a, a actual biblical Christian, things like the Trinity, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the authority and truthfulness of Scripture, practices like repentance, baptism, the Lord's Supper, etc., were were considered essential. But non essential doctrines included uh, different takes on the the nature and the operation and the purpose of spiritual gifts things like the timing and the scheme of the Lord's return as far as practices were concerned i i knew what i believed but i didn't really care whether other churches chose to to baptize with, with immersion or sprinkling um whether they were governed congregationally by elders uh, even though i had uh you know or uh, governed congregationally or by elders i mean Or, and I had, I want to be clear about this, I had convictions about all those things, but i never thought that differences in these areas were significant enough for me to divide from other believers. I saw a problem with this easy categorization, essential, non-essential though, in the last few years. This is a fairly recent development in in me. I saw a problem with that way of categorizing things. Here's what what I saw. If the Bible says, as we just read, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, on what basis can I ever apply the term non-essential? Think about that. God gave you this, and it's profitable for you, but it's not essential for me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? And so I was really, uh, you know... They're confused about what to do. How do you categorize things that we have liberty to disagree on? See, the Bible never tells us to be casual about what we believe. It says make your calling an election sure. It says things like that. And so, it never tells us to be casual about what we believe, and yet there are clearly issues upon which people within the body of Christ have the liberty to disagree. So thankfully, a Couple of years ago, I was led uh, to an article by a couple of guys that I really appreciate, appreciate Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman. And they equipped me with better terminology. And I want to share that with you this morning. Maybe help you to kind of categorize how to categorize when you, when you have a, a, an impasse, when you can't agree. And, and they referred to these categories that I said essential and non-essential. They said they were first, second, and third-order issues. Let me tell you what that means. First-order issues were the ones, by and large, that I had deemed essential. They were the universal beliefs that gave credibility to someone's profession of faith. It's how you could make a reasonable determination when someone said, I am a Christian, that they believed the right things. These are the non-negotiables, as I call them, of Christianity. I'm going to call them Apostles' Creed issues. Um, the Apostles' Creed, for those of you who don't know, is a document that was written uh, three centuries after Jesus that kind of was one of the first formulations of, of, a, of a concise uh, list of, of what true Christians believe, and it's held up very nicely for the last 1,700 years. And it says this, "'I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth.'" I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And I've said this every time I've ever read this in church, that does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. That word Catholic literally just means universal, everyone who is a part of the body of Christ. So don't get nervous. I'm not telling you to embrace Catholicism here. It's the, it's the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now, is there anybody in here who doesn't agree with those things? I hope not, because those are the essentials. Um, These are the things which all true Christians have always believed and always still believe, regardless of their denomination, regardless of their liturgy, regardless of their creed. They bind us together in unity. But there's a second order of things, the second order issues, as these guys called them. And and these are those which define us Northridge Life Church as a church among other churches. Because there are minor uh, 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 below or beneath the apostles creed values, there are things that 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 define us and they may be slightly different than what other churches do and believe and practice. And so second order issues are those that define us as Northridge Life Church or or another church among churches. Um, It doesn't mean that everyone who attends here, even regularly, even as a covenant partner, it doesn't mean that they agree perfectly on these issues, but it's a statement of what the leadership and the founders of the church have unified as a conviction of what we believe together. For example, some churches believe that salvation is initiated by the decision of a man. A man decides to be saved. But we teach here that salvation is from God first to last. Some churches, um, for reasons of their doctrine, will baptize infants and their method of baptism is sprinkling or pouring. We baptize only those people who demonstrate repentance and faith and we do so by immersion. Some people have churches where they get together maybe once a month or once a quarter and they vote on every little single issue. We are led by elders who seek input from the congregation on the things that they're deciding on. None of these differences that I just mentioned make the churches that do things differently somehow less Christian or inferior. They certainly doesn't make them heretics. We just have come to different convictions and conclusions from studying our Bibles, just like they have. Now, I'm not saying also, this again, I'm walking a fine line here. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. They matter to us. And more importantly, they matter to our brothers and sisters in the other churches. But with the light that we have, and nobody has full light, but with the light that we have, we've both, we're both being faithful to how we understand God's word and we're committing to loving those who see it differently. Now when there is a disagreement, and there will be, it's, it's really uh, interesting, I have a few pastor friends around town, and um almost none of them come from a a church with a, a a theological core like i have and so our conversations can get lively to say the least um but uh when there is disagreement dialogue is helpful not arrogance or pride or you know a uh, spirit of superiority but dialogue is helpful especially when it centers around some disputed passage so next time you know we're not a church of christ church um but next time you're, you're sitting with your friend from the church of Christ, why don't you just ask them? Instead of judging them, why don't you just ask them, hey, why don't you guys use instrumentation in your music? And, and ask them to show them, show you from scripture why they've come to that conclusion. I doubt very seriously that you'll agree, but at least you'll know that they actually have a conviction about that. And they came to it from, a, from a, a, what they have reasoned from the scriptures. Even if you disagree. If you have any Presbyterian friends, ask them why they baptize infants. And and, and ask them, hey, from the Scriptures, can you explain this practice to me? And, and, and then here's the other side of it. Answer their questions as well. So do you think it might be helpful to know from the Scriptures why you believe what you believe and why you practice what you practice? I would highly recommend it. Even if you still disagree, you may... Find that you've come to appreciate the conviction from which their perspective is born. It's a great feeling when that happens. We're down to one more. Third order issues are those that people within the same church can disagree on. I, I have the privilege from being the pastor of knowing a lot of you fairly personally. And I, I've sometimes wanted to, uh, take two of you who had vastly different convictions. Uh, on certain theological or, or or church points and stick you in a room and just go like this. <laughs> and just just watch the whole thing and, and, and watch what kind of conclusions you come to. Because even in our church, uh, among brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're not questioning anybody's salvation here, there are people that have wildly different opinions on different things. And, and there's a few that come up from time to time. I'm not going to give you a list because of time here. I don't want to keep you all day. But... The big one, as far as diversity within a single body, always seems to center on the return of Jesus Christ. Boy, we just can't nail that one down, can we? We've had a tough time with this. Some people say, it's, it's going to be soon, probably this week, and if not this week, next week. And some people say, nope, still got a long way to go. A lot of stuff needs to happen. When does Jesus come in relation to the millennium? And, and what do all those mysterious images in Daniel and Revelation mean? People disagree on this stuff all the time. And, and many Christians will even shy away from this discussion for one of two reasons. They either believe what they were taught, their mama or their preacher told them something and they just concreted themselves into there. They believe it and, um, and that's what they're going to believe. Or they find the subject too daunting to take a position or to discover a position, or to research positions. But even third orders like this, listen, third order issues like this cannot, this is going to blow your mind, but I mean it, cannot be considered non-essential. The return of Jesus Christ, as our example, represents the culmination of Jesus Christ's love story with his bride. It is a wonderful thing. No matter how you think it's going to transpire, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus Christ is coming back. It's a glorious thing. Who cares if Cinderella gets to go to the ball if Prince Charming doesn't come looking for her the following morning? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Revelation 1-3 tells us this is not a, a non-essential issue, even if it's a third order issue. It says, blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it for the time is near. But we, but never forget That these things surrounding the end have been shrouded in mystery not by men, not by interpretation, not by the Bible, but by God himself. God himself shrouded these things in mystery. So that we, when we come to somebody that doesn't see it the way we see it, we've got to be absolutely gracious and patient with those who come up with vastly different interpretations than we have. We all, just like I told you about the other things, there's a day coming where we're all going to uh, to understand perfectly the coming of the Lord. We'll get it. And you know what's going to happen? Uh, I'm convinced of this. I'm going to be Uh, united with Christ and and I hope this isn't too unholy but my first thought is well I really got that one wrong that's that's probably going to be the first thought I have I think I know but just like you my, my knowing is probably fairly limited even on third order issues the smallest of the issues it's okay as long as it has these qualifications it's okay to lovingly and humbly challenge things that you discern are weak biblically. Somebody comes with a position and you think, well, because of these seven scriptures, that doesn't really hold up. It's okay. You're you're spurring them on to love and good deeds is what the Bible says. It's okay to do that. But remember, this is where it gets a little sticky. Remember that all third order issues are a two-way street. So, if you can also receive loving humble challenges then you're welcome to hand them out but you better be willing to listen to when somebody challenges you i think understanding first second third order issues helps us to do what paul said in the text this morning let's read it again that you all agree that there be no divisions among you if we Begin to see things in in that framework of first, second, third order issues. We would we would agree we, there wouldn't be divisions. Why? Because we would say, well, um, we agree on what is absolutely essential to our faith, what's essential to our gospel, and on things that we may not be able to agree with. You can go to the church across town, and I can still call you brother. And on issues in our own church where we don't agree on on smaller points of doctrine, then we say, well, I don't agree with you, but my goodness, I'm so glad that I go to church with you and I'm going to heaven with you. You see, that is agreement. It's not lockstep, but it's agreement. We're walking with each other. That's the idea. He says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I can be united with anyone who believes that salvation comes from God and that that our goal in, in life is to know God and enjoy him and glorify him forever. I can get along with you for anything if we agree on that. And that's what that's what Paul is saying here. And how does this work? How does this help us, this, this idea of understanding first, second, third order issues? How does it help us to do all these things that Paul said? Because we begin to realize that my agreement is based on a person, on the value of a person. And that person who is a fellow member of Christ's body, no less. Uh, my my uh, agreement is not based on my opinion or my position or my perspective. It's, it's on the value of you. And it also keeps me aware that none of us know everything and more than that. I already said that. But here's the other part. None of us know everything, but we desperately need each other to thrive. We desperately need each other with all of our differences, with all the stupid doctrines I believe that you think are crazy, you still need me to thrive, (laughs) and vice versa. I need you. I need you in my life. So we've talked a lot about things that we have elevated to bring us apart. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to do the one thing we do know in our practice that is designed to bring us together. Would you stand with me? We're going to take communion this morning. So I'm going to invite you to come to the tables. All right. The Apostle Paul says these words in the same past, uh, the same book that we read from this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Let's let's pray over this, and then we'll take it together. Father, we thank you for your body, the body of your Son Jesus, rather, that was broken for us. Lord, that we uh, it was it, His body was broken into many pieces, so that we could be one. Lord God, that we could be together. God, God, we thank you that we this morning acknowledge. The value of our brothers and sisters in Christ God and, and, and will not allow the devil to sow seeds of discord among us, God on, on minor issues that that uh, very likely none of us know perfectly, and so God, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the example you were of sacrificing for others, Lord, would you just teach us that example, Lord, and thank you for the for the blessing that your suffering brings us together in perfect unity. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the precious blood. God, we sang it this morning. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, my perfect understanding of your scriptures will not wash away my sins until I bend my knee and repent and give you my life and make you the Lord. And so, Lord, I thank you for your blood that was shed to cover my impurity, my pollution, my wickedness, and literally create A new man, Lord, and I thank you for that. Lord, will you just help us to walk in fellowship with you this week and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to just speak a real quick benediction over you and then release you for the day. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.